everybody. Welcome back to the deep dive. We're just wiping the dust off our Batman here. Yes. He's looking good. That's right. Here we go. He's our mascot. Our, uh, I was listening to a guy do impressions the other day. Of Have you ever heard of Frank Caliendo? No. He does impressions. He was on Mad TV, I want to say, back in the day. And he did this. He was doing impressions of all these different people being Batman. And he did a Jeff Goldblum one. And I thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> it was like... It's not who I am under these clothes. No, no, no. It's it's what I do that defines me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I That's can't very do, good. You got to look him up on TikTok. I just loved the pacing of it. Like, no, it's not who I am under the costume. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, hey, yeah, Colin, I wanted to start actually with a uh, uh, a few corrections. Oh, a few, uh, excellent. Uh, well, uh, corrections or just comments that uh, I I had gone back and I listened to like the first ten seconds of a podcast we had done a little while ago, and this is very silly to correct because no one probably noticed, but I had mentioned that Constantine came to the throne in, I think I said 316, and that date is wrong. It was 306, and I just want to, I'm just I'm just covering my bases just in case nice. there was somebody who pushing And then 313 glasses. was the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity. Sure. Yeah, actually, I think you're right. I do think you're right. I uh, I can't be. I'm not right on my dates there. But uh, are you good with dates? Some dates. Some yeah. dates. Um, a lot of authors I read, especially when I was in uh, Conrad Grable, um, mm-hmm. were very anti-Constantine. So so reading a lot of <laughs> so you know people those dates. Yeah, three thirteen, three thirteen. So I'm a stickler when the for dates. O- became over until then the Anabaptist <laughs> right in the uh, Anabaptist and, you know Reformation. You have to know that date because it, most significant it. date. Like, is there a date for you that you're like, now that's the there's the turning. No, like I can't. Do you know what I, I mean? can't remember off the top of my head um, when the when Luther nailed the thirteen. Fifteen. I knew 17. it was in October. Fifteen seventeen. Fifteen seventeen. See, yep. I couldn't remember See, that. So I'm a stickler. I knew it was in October dates. though. I think, wasn't it? Was it like... Yeah, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, October yeah, yeah. or something? Well, October 31st is Reformation Day. When people say Happy that Halloween, I always say Happy Reformation Day. <laughs> Even though, was the Reformation a good thing? That's a, uh, there's a podcast oh, for sure. in a nutshell, yeah. You know, a lament or a celebration, really. Um, a little bit of both. A little bit of both, and it's true. I think I'm more lament camp, but definitely, uh, but, you know, only in the sense that any disunity within the church, I think, breaks God's heart, but I do think necessary. Um uh, but those Catholics were wrong, and we needed to correct them, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, they reformed, Apologies too. to my Catholic they brothers and sisters. That was a joke. My tongue was in my cheeks. I hope there are Catholics listening. I we That would be awesome if we had Catholics we do, listening. We do love our Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, the reason I'm, I, I was saying this, because dates are very important to me, mm. uh, mainly because, and, and this I, most people I talk to are horrible with dates. Everyone always says they're terrible with dates. My wife, I'm going to throw her under the bus right now. My wife is the worst with dates. Like, you could be like... When did World War II happen? And she's like, in the past. Like, it just, (laughs) (laughs) if it was before I was born, it's just back then. You know what I mean? And there's no difference between. But this matters, I think, immensely for a couple of reasons. And and not that you have to have exact dates, but having a rough idea of a timeline really helps people, especially with theology, because then you know where certain people's ideas came into uh, fruition and and then how it shaped and affected either what came after or what was before it. So 586 BC was the fall of, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yep. Yep. Uh, the, uh, and, the, the and then first fall seven, yeah, 780? seven, no, 722. I want to say 
Jeez, that's been a while. Seven something with the fall of, of northern I'm bad with that. northern Israel. And then the, one of the main, right, then 70 AD, the fall of the temple. AD, right? yep, that's, that's a right. big one. So just being able to situate, you know, and then when you're talking about certain figures, and I'm bringing this up because today we want to talk about my boy, Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth being easily one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. And, and certainly we're going to talk in the future, I think, more about our own personal favorite theologians, like who's shaped us the most. Yep. But Barth, um, not only has Barth shaped me significantly, and that's a lot to do with where I go to school and things like that, um, but truthfully, I believe he shaped everybody. Uh, and, and he's one of the reasons why we got to talk about him and why I keep bringing this thing up about dates is because it's important to situate kind of a timeline of what's going on in theology by the time you get to Bart um, in the 20th century. Yeah, Bart, we have to set the stage before we Yeah, we should really Mr. do Bart. that. And I think, you know, I'm going to just also say that this will be very introductory. Uh, we're we're going to talk about some of the significance of uh, Bart's theology. Karl Bart. Karl Barth theology. Is, is what his friends called him. That's right. It's a great name, Karl Barth. I'll bet Karl Barth was like one of those guys who was never just Karl. You're Yo, Karl Barth. Karl Barth. Some people just need, yeah. you need to give them their full A lot name. of people want to say Barth because there's a TH on the end, yes. but apparently it is not. It's Karl Barth. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, so I just, uh, the, the dates, like I said, are not that important to know them specifically, but it gives you a, a, a once date. I once debated an atheist at a party who was just grilling me with questions nice. and he raised something about like Aristotle. And I was like, when do you think Aristotle was? And he just said, I don't know, like 1300. And I was like, <laughs> see, this is a problem. And like, and, and he didn't recognize that it was like, now the debate's over. You understand? <laughs> you understand we can't talk anymore because at that point you're going, if you really think like, if you're unaware that Aristotle, and I'm, by the way, this is not me condescending to anybody. Like if you don't know that, that's fine, but don't debate a Christian and then tell them that, okay, oh, yeah, that Aristotle, Aristotle was not, you know, hundreds of years before Christ. Um, then, then you're going to have some facts mis- yeah. messed up, right? In terms of like who's influencing what, and the reason why Bart I want to talk about more in a in a grander, more significant way is because Bart really is the theologian who I won't say culminates, uh, but but is he is part of the tradition in the sort of way we talk about like the titans who changed the tradition. Yes, there are just certain theologians who everybody should kind of have some awareness of, I think, uh, you know, you don't need to have a deep knowledge, but just an yeah. understanding that like they kind of were game changers. That's right. And Bart he, is that guy. He, he is to the 20th, 20th century and modern day, uh, you know, theology, what the Beatles were to, to 20th century music. Love it. Great way to put it. He yeah. is, he is the Beatles of theology really in my, in my opinion, because you know, uh, and in yours obviously too. I love uh, the Beatles. <laughs> I, well, because, and this is, you know, if you were to ask me, and this is a personal thing now, but if you were to ask me who's the greatest band of all time, I'd say it's the Beatles and then everybody else. Absolutely. Okay. And, but the difference is I don't think that's subjective. I'm saying it's my opinion, but I don't think it's subjective. Yeah, I, think you <laughs> I can go make like the argument. In a way, you can kind of say like, they were the just period. They were the greatest. Every other band since them have right. pretty much imitated them, even right. if they didn't know it. Now, of course, they imitated many, and they that's did. a thing. But. Bart, in many ways, is that he's also, you know, I'd put it like he's like Picasso. Like if you look at art, 
there's a certain progression that art moves through that's kind of easy or easier to kind of note when like certain movements occurred because mm-hmm. it's visual and you just see that. And that's why, you know, somebody might look at Picasso and go, my three-year-old could draw that and it's what makes him so good. Yes. And it has more to do with like, he was the first to look at it with this perspective. He did something no one else was doing. He yes. came up with cubism. He did this thing. Bart is the same way in theology. He changes the theological landscape. And in that way, to anyone listening, like you probably are more Bardian than you think. Like yeah. if you're if you're a in if you're a Christian and you run around, certainly in any Protestant circle, although you could even say this of other denominations and Catholics included, um, Bart's kinda in the water. You have to kind of go in through or around him in order to kind of situate uh, where where we are and where you're coming from. And so understanding where Bart was coming from, before we even get to like, what was his theology about? What was happening before him, I think is interesting and, and important to map out. So let's go with starting with the dates. Bart is born in 1886. So he's exactly, he's 102 years older than me, right? Uh, when I was born. I was born in 88, 1988. And you were yeah. born in 1980. I knew if I said this, you would. <laughs> I'm not saying when I was born. You don't have to. 1986, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? God um, bless you, sir. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, then, so then Bart is 100 years before you. Um, so yeah, 1886. And when he's about 25 years old, he's born in, uh, in Switzerland. Uh, when he's about 25 years old, he becomes a priest and, uh, or a pastor, right? in the Reformed Church, and uh, ends up going to get a theological education in Berlin, in Germany, because that's kind of like the epicenter that's of where, where you go. That's yeah. where you go at the time, right? I mean, that's where theology is happening. Um, and uh, writes yeah. writes one of his major works, the Epistle to the Romans, Romerbrief in, in uh, German, um, writes that, I believe, in the 1920s. I know the English translation comes out in like 1933, so that gives you a kind of... And that book is a bombshell that radically shapes things. I just got it for Christmas, but Did I haven't you? started reading Fant- it yet. Oh, everybody, no. go ahead and grab yourself a copy of that if you're just interested in reading some like... I mean, it's highbrow theology in one sense. Obviously it is, but it's it's also... He's a joy to read, and he's somebody... Probably his most accessible work, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, well, definitely more than like the than church the dogmatics. Yeah. <laughs> so then he goes on like that's the other. Oh, we'll just map this out very quickly. That he writes that he becomes sort of a celebrity pastor. He then, and we'll talk about this too. He then in 1935 pens the Barman Declaration because World War II is happening or it's about yes. to occur, and he basically writes a treatise against the Nazis and yes. says like the Church, the Confessing Church of of Germany, cannot get on board with this. This is evil. Uh, this is not what Christians should be upholding. He's with Bonhoeffer, by the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, kind of around the same circles here. That's right. And uh, and he gets banned from he gets kicked out of Germany for yes. for writing this. And so he returns to Switzerland, where he ends up with a post at the uh, University of Basel, I believe. And uh, he remains there for the rest of his life. And as sort of a as sort of like the world's most famous and also notorious theologian. And he spends his life there and he writes what is now known as the church dogmatics. And the church dogmatics, for anyone who wants to know, is like a six is million word, four volume, but like 14 parts, massive theological systematic theology huge. that isn't even finished. He never even finished. That's right. Sadly. Um, the joke about Bart is he never wrote a word that wasn't published. So, I mean, like he just was insanely prolific. Um, uh, one of the One of the most... 
like classically trained, like new, when you read him, he had a book that he wrote called Protestant Theology in the 19th Century, a history of Protestant theology in the 19th century. And he writes all about like Kant and Hegel and all these philosophers. And there he gives a rundown of all of them. And the breadth of knowledge that he displays, like it's just, it's staggering when you read somebody like Bart, you're like, how did you have a brain this big? So it just, he's just one of those people who could read somebody like Hegel the first time and just understand it <laughs> and then critique it yes. and lay it out. So he's, he's a big deal in this, uh, in this, in this way. Yes. And you have to have a huge mind to read the dogmatics. Have you ever actually read the through yes, the dogmatics? I have, well, so I know, obviously not I've, the not, whole thing? I've not read the whole thing, but yeah. in my studies and PhD studies, I, I study with um, uh, one of the guys on my committee. His name is Joseph Mangina, and he would be one of the leading Bardian scholars in the world today. Um, the two main ones, uh, George Hunsinger and um, uh, another guy named Bruce McCormack out of Princeton University tend to be known as sort of like the top Bardian guys, and they sort of debate with each other. Um, my professor, Joe Mangina, is uh, is kind of a name associated in many ways with just Bardian scholarship. And so I got Bart kind of hammered into me in the last <laughs> five years of my life. Like, yes. Um, I knew about him in my master's stuff. Um, I studied a guy named Wolfhart Ponnenberg, who was a student of Bart's. So I knew about Bart, and yeah. I was aware. Anyone had to be aware of him. But I really got my, like, my teeth were cut on Bart yeah. in the last five years and in a big way. An average Christian sitting in the pews probably doesn't know anything about Bart. But if you take any degree of theological education, yes, even for a year, yeah, 100%. there's no way you're, you're going to take a theology course and not have your yeah. professor talk about Bart. Without a doubt. I mean, even be, the... And not even have his influence shown, even if you don't know, recognize it. Right. And, and, and let's just state up front, too, what is that? What a main aspect of that uh, influence is probably the Christocentric nature of Bart's works. So we'll talk about this uh, in more detail, but just to kind of give you a preview up front, Bart is incredibly popular because mainly of the way he develops a theology that begins and ends with Jesus. And... It's funny that listening to that, you might go, isn't duh. that, duh? Yeah, that's yeah. obvious. And the truth is, it just wasn't as obvious before in the yeah. way that, certainly in the way Bart develops it. Um, so you have to understand the 19th century. That's why, right. Why was Berlin the place to be that's uh, right. in theology? Like it was, the, it was a huge place for biblical scholarship, theology. And they, and they the 19th century German, uh, you know, biblical scholars and theologians had a huge impact on the world. Like, I mean, I think we would maybe put maybe more Yale and Princeton and that kind of thing as being some of the top schools mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in the world right now in, in on many levels. But back then it was, it was oh, Berlin, especially absolutely. for, again, if you're talking about the Bible and, yeah. and, but they had a very specific understanding of that. Did, did you want to talk about that a little bit? Of, yeah, definitely. Well, where did that come so from? So this is where, like, let's, like thoughts? you said, Germany becomes in many ways a place of uh, theological excellence in the, yes. in the 18th century, um, 18th and 19th. And, uh, this is all, this all traces itself back to the enlightenment. And I think this is why we need to talk about this because the enlightenment first appears in Europe and then spreads outward. Um, so the Enlightenment period is typically – some historians would date it like 1650 to near the end of uh, the 1700s. So, And the reason why 1650, by the way, is that it 
coincides with the death of Rene Descartes, the philosopher. That's one of the reasons why it's put around that date. Is that not? Is there not also the Treaty of Westphalia? The, yes, the yeah. end of some of those revolution. That's not right. Revolution, of, excuse me. Those Reformation, the wars, wars yeah. and such. So there's uh, things like that, and then the culmination uh, is sort of right, like 1789. You have the French Revolution. Hmm. This is a massive uprising, okay, the of the of, embodiment, you know, incarnated in many ways. Exactly. So, so when you go back to the Enlightenment, I think it's we, we have to understand what the Enlightenment did first of all, in order to understand what Bart is going to be writing about, because Bart is writing a theology in some way. And he, actually, I'm going to clear up a misconception: is that some people have this idea that what Bart was doing is writing in like polemic uh, against uh, liberal Protestantism which arises out of the Enlightenment on one side and then like Catholicism on the other and that he was writing against these things. In many ways he is, he's taking them on, but he is also trying, and this is important, that he's trying to synthesize or take the best of what happened in the Enlightenment with him. So when so there's we, a disagreement, but not necessarily a yeah, like enmity, the, right? Right, They're precisely. They're a lot more alike than they are different. And I don't know how I don't know how foreign this will be to most of the people listening, but the Enlightenment period, maybe if you've never heard of it, none of this will you know will will try and get you a little deeper into it. Check out you, Wikipedia. But if you have heard of it, chances are you might have heard of it actually in more negative ways in the church, right? That the Enlightenment is. A, uh, a sort of destruction of church authority. And certainly it is that in many ways. But let's understand exactly what that looked like, right? I mean, there were, we were dealing with an age of, of kings and queens who were, you know, given a divine right uh, and, and really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, like if you go back to, if you go back to, uh, uh, 1789 in the French revolution, you have like Marie Antoinette, which is like, I mean, you have a teenage daughter. Yes, I do. Right. Would you make her queen? I'm sure you love her, Absolutely but would, she, would, would you say, good idea having you to be queen? Yeah. yeah. Right? She That's would make not everyone good. watch anime. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> That's probably better than starving them to death, which is what That's true. And saying, let them really eat did. cake. And saying, let them eat cake, because yeah. she was just so unaware of really what was happening. Um, but, you know, things aren't good. And there's this pervasive, you know, what we have to understand, I think, about a pre-enlightenment culture is that knowledge comes to people in a very top-down structured way. Um, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, you know, ways in which humanity understood itself as having a place in the world in a pre-enlightenment culture in the sense that like, if you were a peasant, uh, you were a peasant because God wanted you to be a peasant. And if you were a king, you were a king because God wanted you to be a king. I mean, they kind of understand things more in that sense. There's no like our 21st century capitalist understanding of like, well, I might be here now and I can work my way to the top. Right. Yes. I mean, like, you can be the best cobbler you can be, but That's you're right. not going to... Much more like a caste system. Yeah, it's a caste system, right, exactly. And you, you sort of understand yourself in that way. Well, there are two key elements of the Enlightenment that I think Bart is going to take hold of that are really important to him. And the first is that the Enlightenment develops a, a new understanding of what Bart will say, the new mensch, the new man, an absolutist person, um, the person who is now totally free from all sort of uh, limitations other than the ones they place on themselves, that human beings have a new autonomy as a result of the Enlightenment, which is, and, and if I'm not explaining this enough, I mean, uh, let me know. I, I don't know if I need to go into this more. The Enlightenment is the age of reason. It's the age of scientific revolution. It's, uh, you know, it, it 
Copernicus, Galileo, the discovery of the planets and all this stuff, the, the world all of a sudden is getting bigger to people. And so what comes along with that is a dismantling of the authority of things like the church as well as the monarchy, but, and the forming of republics and things like that. But the, this isn't, um, uh, uh, this isn't all a bad thing, right? I yes. mean, like a lot of this is tyrannical. A lot of this is bad. A lot of this needs to go. Uh, so there's, and I think in our churches today, when we talk about individual autonomy, um, we want to put a fine uh, cap on where that kind of trails off into bad things, right? But there's an importance to the idea that like God, and this is what Bard is going to kind of get at too, is like God has created you free though. You are to a, like, what does that freedom look like? For a Christian, it looks like obedience to Christ. And that's what Bard is going to talk about. But the idea that the Enlightenment understood that human beings are autonomous individuals who uh, who are, are, are far less limited than they believe themselves to be is a good thing. It's a good development. Right? Sure. The second element that he's going to focus on, which kind of runs parallel to what we've already been saying, and it becomes the, uh, if, if you know the philosopher Immanuel Kant, it becomes sort of the like key word in his writings. He writes the critique of pure reason. Uh, the word critique there is a sort of the next embodiment of the Enlightenment. The, the, the Enlightenment is a suspicion, a critique of any sort of power, authority, and structure. So this idea that like, before knowledge is sort of a top-down thing, now it's more egalitarian. It's more democratic. It's more like we can we can decide for ourselves. We can we can do things with this. And so the church, the church is part of that. And there's Christendom, right? There's like a sense in which the church is all-encompassing and it covers this broad territory of both like politic and the, you know, the, the state church separation uh, is is not full yet, let's say. And and they're kind of in bed together. And so this idea that like we should critique this, we should really look at it and be suspicious of it is another thing that the Enlightenment uh, uh, really brings forward. Like when you look at, and, and, and actually here's maybe the main thing that I would say about that is that what it does is it makes a suspicion of things that appear to be a certain way. Yes. So when you looked at like Galileo and Copernicus, for instance, and they're looking at the planets, it seemed by appearance that it was obvious to say that the sun rotates around the earth. That's what it looks like to us. The Enlightenment's great triumph was in saying, but does it really, right? Does it really? Let's see for ourselves. And so there's this element of what the Enlightenment gives as well of, yeah, that's what I've been told it is, but let me see for myself. Let me try it for myself. And that second point there is something that Bard is also going to take deeply into consideration as he looks at how religion and, and how the Christian religion functions and how it has to be an embodied religion. I've talked about this, I think, on podcasts before. It's in my own theology very deeply. You can't be a Christian unless you are trying to live as a Christian. We have to experience it from the inside, from the Absolutely. outside, right? So that's going to be a focus as well. But... What happens with the Enlightenment, right? That, that what does it move into? Well, theology had to kind of keep pace with what was going on, with that critique, that sort of like dismantling of hierarchies and powers. And so there were certain theologians who tried to deal with this. And one of the key names was a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. It's a bit of a mouthful of a name, but, but Schleiermacher... <laughs> very German sounding. Very, yeah, very German sounding. Schleiermacher becomes 
like, I, I don't know how much this analogy will land, but it's like what Immanuel Kant was to philosophy, Schleiermacher was to theology. He's another one of these like titan game-changing guys who stands now as the vanguard of what you would call Protestant liberal theology. And what does Schleiermacher do? He basically looks at religion. And I keep in mind, I'm going to reduce all of this and there'll be some Schleiermacher yes, scholars is, uh, out there who are going to wrap me over the knuckles. Yes. But, but I'm trying to give a, a very general sense and what was happening, right? I mean, the Enlightenment forced theology into saying, like, there's a new intellectual ethos now. We have to understand the world a little bit differently. We have to understand religion a little bit differently. And the great triumph of Schleiermacher is that he goes, religion is deeply ingrained in humanity. It's a necessary component. This, this has a lot to do with a lot of uh, the literature that's being written around the time. You have people like uh, uh, Goethe. And Goethe is writing about the artistry of humanity that human beings have this ability, right? This autonomous individual who can move in any direction. The life can be this artistic expression. It can be vibrant and romantic, and it's a lovely thing, right? Well, Schleiermacher is trying to tap into that, and he's trying to say, well, if you want to be this full individual, you have to, you have to pay attention to the religious component that's within your life. And so we associate Schleiermacher with the, with the words feeling independence, that religious feeling, there is a, there's a certain dependence we have on the religious understanding of the world that makes us a fuller human being, that, that grounds us, that like if you really want to be an expert in like, you know, you want to be an expert in math and history and all these wonderful things that the Enlightenment is championing, part of it is a religious element. And you need to, we have a sort of ingrained tendency to just move towards these things. So Schleiermacher's success isn't because he just writes a bunch of really great arguments. It has more to do with a sort of general mood and feeling that it's like theology can exist now within that enlightenment breaking down. Are we, am I making sense so far? Is this, are we tracking with, with what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think it's what you're saying, what I'm getting, what you're saying is that at one point, we are living in a world of a lot of authority where your station in life as an individual is determined by society. You're either a peasant or you're a prince. Mm -hmm. Princes are there by divine right. You know, peasants are there by divine right, so to speak. You're in your yeah. station. It's your, you're being ordained to be. And it's, yeah. it's, that's right. And, and, and it's, it's God's authority coming down. And the, the Enlightenment comes along and says, that there's a lot more to the situation, uh, that there's much more freedom, much more uh, in the world, in life, the universe, and everything for us to grasp than these much more narrow understandings that the authority of both the church and state, monarchy and, mm -hmm. and ecclesiology has, has come down to us. And so, so it's a, it's really, a, 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 you know, wanting to, to make the, that increase that breadth of knowledge and of freedom on so many levels, politically, intellectually. And as you're just saying with Schliermacher, um, mm -hmm. if I'm saying that correctly, <laughs> uh, that that's also then true, uh, religiously and theologically as well. In the Enlightenment, then the just the the structure and hierarchy of the church is in charge, or the or the kings or the queens are in charge. So yeah. there's there's a swapping there of authority on one level. 
That's right. That's exactly right. I think, I think, like you said, reason becomes elevated to the place that the church previously held, if you will. So where everything was a top-down authority, now with the autonomous individual, reason dictates everything. Um, reason with a capital R. It, it gets brought up to that sort of uh, that place of this is how we deal with ideas and here's how we work through stuff. So even even ideas like you can see where the autonomous individual, certain doctrines that were taught within the church will start to offend that autonomy. So things like the Trinity or Trinity is co-relation, right? Complete reliance on God through, through grace, original sin, these ideas, these all offend the autonomous individual. Um, and that critique of religion is going to get carried through by a number of figures. But what Schleiermacher is going to try and do then is create an understanding of religion that that says, if this is what humanity basically is as this autonomous individual and and they are their own work of art, so to speak, and can move in these different directions and make of themselves whatever they want to, um, we have to understand the religious component of that life and it's necessary for them. Um, the religious element gives uh, a certain moral fabric and a, and a, and a uh, sort of meaning to life. It gives it a teleology, if you will, an endpoint. It gives it a, it gives it all of its robustness and stuff. And there's beauty in that. But the problem is, is that that's dealing from sort of anthropology on through to then divine revelation. So a different focus, a totally different focus in the sense that liberal theology now is examining sort of what is humanity apart from divine revelation. What is humanity in of itself? How do we reason through things? And then we try and situate Christianity in light of that. And so you have, uh, you have an interesting way in which his, somebody like Schleiermacher's systematic, theology. He writes uh, a famous work called uh, The Speeches, it's called. Um, it's got a longer title. It was written in 1799 on the speeches of religion. And um, it's sort of a defense. It's uh, That's the subtitle, against its, I'm trying to remember it, against its uh, cultural despisers or something like mm. that. And, uh, and he's trying to defend the faith to enlightenment rational people and saying this is, this is a component of what you need to do and, and religion is a, is a part of every human being. But then you see in that systematic how all of the sort of human-centered doctrines, sin, humanity, the person, all of that, are, are then they filter up towards something like the Trinity, which he ends the speeches of religions on. When I was in my master's program, we were asked to do an assignment that I thought was really good. Our professor had us just look at the table of contents of certain theologians mm. and not like, don't go right into their work. Just look at their table of contents. What's important to them? What's first, right? Because that's what systematic, when we do systematic theology and you're talking about theology as like this web of ideas, where do you begin? It matters where you begin. If you look at somebody like Schleiermacher, where does the Trinity fall in Schleiermacher? It's at the very end. He's dealing with sin, humanity, all kinds of stuff. And then by the end of it, he gets to the Trinity. What Bart's going to do is reverse the order. So Bart begins with the Trinity. Bart begins with revelation. So when Bart finally responds to somebody like Schleiermacher, what Schleiermacher had done was create like a way of understanding religion as sort of a necessary component to human life. And I actually think that like Bart agrees with him in that sense that he goes, everybody is inherently sort of religious in this way. Um, but that it's a way of making sense of our humanity. Bart wants to say the opposite. He wants to say, no, Christianity, specifically Christ himself, is the way of making sense of our humanity. Mm. Humanity doesn't make sense of Jesus. 
It doesn't, you can't start from anthropology, figure out what human beings are like, and then insert Jesus and go like, oh yeah, he really, you know, changes the game there. He's saying, if, if the Bible is really about uh, our religion, our morality, our history, it's about God's morality, God's history, God's religion, right? It's about the kingdom of God. It's not about just history and morality as these sort of like, you know, untethered disciplines that we kind of do on our own. It all has to work outwardly from the word of God itself. And so all of our understanding of the world needs to be inhabited by the Bible and then move outward. That's sort of a starting place there. And and there's a a good example of of the influence of um, Bart because pretty much every systematic theology book that I've read in my personal education starts with the doctrine of, of God or the Bible and right. or the Bible right. there exactly. and works it out, stuff out from there. So a world of difference from Schleiermacher. And so mm-hmm. I, I th- it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think, you know, the, there's, a, as you said, there's an important sense in which we shouldn't just throw out the enlightenment, which is the way many people will talk. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly there are things about the Enlightenment that we should not be supporting, but there's a lot about it that that is, is helpful and beneficial, and Bart comes along and sort of does a good job of, as you say, a correction of that, of right. keeping what's important and and counteracting yeah. what is... Holding perhaps- on to, Holding on to the things that they were revolting against that I think he saw as as a sort of, yeah, naturally we're going to be opposed to these kinds of things. Let me just say a little bit more about what the liberal theology tendency was because Schleiermacher had developed that what liberal theology did as a result and like the direction that it went in was really more of an empirical study of the Bible, a a historical study of the Bible. Who is Jesus? Well, he is this man who lived in Galilee this many years ago and we need to study the past and the history of him in order to understand who he is. So all of a sudden you have this very cold, you know, I'm using that word, uh, a sort of cold, um, unmystical, very scientifically driven theological understanding in which the Bible is just a, is, is another part of sort of the general revelation of God. Yes. And, and so the Bible can be mined for data is the term I like to use. Yeah, we talked about we can, this a, f- a few episodes ago when we were talking about the Bible. That yeah. there are that there have been, and and still are today. Uh, but I and I think Bart was pushing against this as well. Is that we can look at the Bible as being this dead body that we're autopsying to see right. what happened to it, or we see it as a living thing mm-hmm. that that you know in the one sense we are standing over the Bible it, it's dead on a slab and we're, we're dissecting it. But the other sense, it's something that's alive and we are underneath it. Right. And, and how you approach the Bible from that context is, is huge. And I think Bart is a, is a important influence on us in, in shifting that, mm-hmm. that dynamic without necessarily throwing out everything that, uh, totally. And enlightenment thought, would bring. And this is and this is part of the reason why he he is not throwing out all of the enlightenment and why his theology is the way it is is that his own experience of you know he he witnessed World War One, um, he was there for World War Two when it was when it was you know well actually he was there for World War Two yeah um, uh, those experiences led him to you know liberal theology his his Protestant theological uh, mentors and professors. We're suddenly signing 
declaration saying we need to side with the Kaiser above all else, right? This was, and he was going, how is this happening? And he realized that a lot of that liberal Protestant theology stream of an empirical study, it's just a history that we need to approach, um, left them subjectively uh, swaying to whatever sort of thing was going on that they could then later justify with the Bible, right? I mean, they, they it kind of like the Bible was secondary to their reasoning about yes. this whole thing. And so one of Bart's big contributions, if you will, or maybe one of the debates that still swirls around him is his rejection of a sort of general or even what we call a natural theology. Now, it's important, I just put a caveat on, like natural theology being like, what do we know of the world? What does it tell us of God? He's not totally uh, uh, unwilling to do that, but he's saying it needs. To, we need to begin with revelation. What does yes. the Bible say about God? How does God present himself? How does God speak to us? And from there, we can move outward. But this yeah, idea... Sometimes that's been de- defined as... Special revelation. Special the Bible revelation. is our special yes. revelation. So Bart Science is the champion and the of history, special things like that. That's that's more of a general. That's revelation. right. And so here's a. I, uh, this isn't a phrase of Bart's. Uh, I think an autobiographer, or uh, sorry, a, a biographer, a biographer of his said this, and it's just a good line to kind of understand where Bart is coming from. Is that he would say very strongly that the revelation of God comes to us only in that it contradicts us. Mm. You know, that's a, like, think about that statement for a second. That's a difficult no, And I don't, I'm not telling anybody that they need to agree with this. This is just one of the kind of radical moves that he's making where he's saying God's revelation shows us that the appearance of things going back to that needs to be examined more thoroughly, that it isn't just what natural theology tells us. And if we try and follow that, we might end up in, in murky waters. We might end Absolutely. up kind of being swayed by our emotional understanding of things. We need to be people of the word of God. And specifically, when he says word of God, he's referring to, he has all understand the threefold word, but yes. Christ, right? Christ yes. as Christ he is, is revealed through. Word. And That's actually in the, the Barma Declaration, right? right. That, that the word, our loyalty and our ultimate authority is to Christ as the word of God, mm-hmm. um, which is very interesting. I remember first reading the Barma Declaration and seeing that and being like, Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that's, I, that's I, I spicy like that. stuff politically um, and otherwise. Yeah, Because so often in evangelical vernacular, the word of God equals the Bible. Yeah. But the word of God is Jesus as well. As well. And, and yeah. I like that that emphasis on, on the word of God being Jesus because the way we read the Bible as well can be really important, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if we start to, be, to base a certain theological or moral arguments on the Old Testament separate from Jesus, we're going down a bad trail. Even if you're making a biblical, you might be making a biblical argument, but are you making a Christian argument? Right. Right. And I think that's where Bart is saying, certainly with the Barma Declaration, that's, that's his big push. Barma Declaration is such a brilliant, it's just, you can read it, look it up on the, on the internet. Yeah. uh, Oh, no, it's uh, interesting to go into. Um, It's just, it's like what, six just brief points or something like that. Very well crafted. Yes. Very like and yet meticulous in their detail about and and still so relevant today. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. when you see things like what happened in January sixth, two thousand and one, in the states, and yeah, right. the whole American uh, issue of 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 the church and the state and how they see it. Yeah. Um. Uh, and how sometimes there's no differential point. I think for for many people uh, between 
what is right for the church and what's right for mm-hmm. America or Canada or whatever. Uh, Bart comes out in the Barman Declaration to say, no, our, our loyalty you know, needs to be to Christ first and foremost, to his word, and and we can't follow the, the lead of the it, state. And that's a over radical the, thing. Christ. Yeah, I it's don't, you can't, you can't really undermine the fact that, I mean, I, I don't have exact numbers on this, but I know that like the, the church by the vast majority supported Hitler, right? I mean, his, especially even in his reform circles and stuff, like, I'm talking like 90% approval rate, you know what I mean? Like somewhere around there of in support of what was going on. So to stand against that was a tremendous uh, move at the time. And that's why I say he remained not only like this celebrity, but a kind of a notorious theologian too, to challenge so much of what was going on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like we said, was a part of this too. And there, there are correspondent, like, you know, letters between the two that yes. are interesting to read. Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up at one point fleeing to the United States and, and, Bart, and Bart basically Bart, read him, wrote him a letter and was like, you get back here. <laughs> like you have to, we have to do this together. You have to yes. come back and like, and then he gets arrested and, and, and dies in the yeah. camp. And I know, that weighed heavily on Bart, like it did, yeah, 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 indeed. Like, I, I got my friend killed, right? And right. Uh, and and reading Bart and Bonhoeffer together can be an interesting thing too to mm. kind of compare their theologies and to understand where they were coming from. So part of this, uh, part of the thing that we also have to understand about Bart is that while he's battling this sort of liberal Protestant movement, um, he it makes him, that's where he sort of sides actually with some of that enlightenment principle of like religion and religious authority. He, he becomes a theological outsider, a real critic of the church, mm. right? Uh, because he's watched the church move along with these sort of like emotive sways of like, oh, okay, you're going this way with this political faction. Like where does the Bible speak to your decisions and things like that? So he becomes a major critic of, of religion. He calls it the one great concern of godless man at one point. Now, when he says that, it's not to say that he's somehow trying to eradicate the church or anything like that. Far from it. Bart is also a pastor and that's important to know. Like his theology is not just some high academic thing. He is, he's deeply pastoral in his, in his approach. But, um, but he is very wary of, of, sort of the authority that churches have and the ways that they can use it. So, um, so really a, a major part of that theology is this, is this reversal, like I said, sort of moving everything back to Christ is not just our sort of guide, our teacher. Christ is, is humanity itself completed. Christ is, is God's elect. Christ mm. is all of humanity in its completed state, right? This is this sort of radical Christocentrism that I'm referring yes. to that, that when we look at our churches today and we're like, it's all about Jesus. Well, yeah, no duh. Um, Bard's putting a very fine point on that and kind of going to the furthest extent of what does that really mean? And probably going a lot further than even many of our listeners would recognize as well as yeah, we I just think talked so, about yeah. with the Barman Declaration. Do we think thing that way yes about our relationship to to the state right uh, again just look at if we look at some of the debates um about politics and stuff you know i mean it, it's easy for many of us to say oh we would not get swept up with with hitler if we were in nazi germany but think of the the extreme popularity that someone like donald trump has had down in the states mm. uh, and even mm-hmm. up here there's, there's even been some some Christians up here I know who have said to me they think yeah, for sure. Trump is great. And, 
you know, like just our infatuation with worldly leaders is, is still something that is a temptation for us. And I think Bart would really, really encourage us to push back yeah, I think he would. against that. Yeah. And, and we had talked about a little bit earlier and we've mentioned the names on the podcast of people like John Howard Yoder and, and Howard Wass and others. Um, who Bart was deeply influential on. Like I said, Bart is deeply influential on almost everybody at the time. But I mean, if you like, if you take somebody like Stanley Hauerwas, who separation of church state, or in the way of saying the church is its own body politic, it needs to follow its own, right? That's a deeply Bartian kind of position. I won't go too much right now, obviously, into more of his actual writings and what he has done. We should maybe save that for another time. But I will say that the other thing that... When the, when the epistle to the Romans, his book, Romer Brief, comes out, um, one of the reasons why it makes such a, a huge impact is, is that when he's writing about this whole um, Christocentric, everything from Christ outward sort of position, he develops what he's been known as now as, a, he develops a dialectical theology. And what that means is, is a theology that basically holds things in tension that can't be easily logicized, but requires faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Right, and, and that's in a little bit of a pushback on some of that liberal theology and some of the Enlightenment as well, because the Enlightenment and liberal theology wants to codify and wants to emphasize the our ability, as you said, to, the Bible is a book for us to mine that's information right. and from. to make sense of. Right, that's and right. To, yeah. Whereas, as Bart says, to some degree. God is unknowable. That's right. Like, and we, and what we know, we know a, a crumb about him from what the Bible tells us. That's right. But ultimately we can't be, you know, uh, too big, you know, yeah, too, John, too much I, emphasis on ourselves to think, oh, we've got this God thing figured out. He's like, well, you'll never have Absolutely not. Out. Right. And that's part of that. God reveals himself in that he contradicts us. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, this is, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, not get too, uh, I don't want to lose people too quickly, <laughs> yeah. but the, this is where you also see a lot of his Kantian influence and where Bart is a bit of a Kantian where Kant was famous in philosophy for sort of separating what is, you know, the, the phenomenal and the noumenal, the, the world that we experience and see in reality. And then the noumenal, which is the transcendent realm of God that we can't really get a grasp on. Kant believed that you needed to have God as an understanding for ethics and morality, but that's where God came in. And other than that, you really can't talk about God. You mm. can't talk about God because he's in a way, Bard is saying the same thing. He's like, God is God and you're not like <laughs> one of Bard's most famous lines, let God be God. Yes. Uh, God is not you <laughs> and God is beyond you. And only when God speaks can we know anything that God says. And this is like foundational to everything he writes in theology is always working from that standpoint. And so liberal theology just never, you know, it was trying to do it like it's a forensic case that we can solve. Bart is all about, he is, he is the theologian of revelation. Yes. That's where the dialectical understanding comes in. Let me just break down that phrase a little bit. I mean, dialectic also just means argument in a sense. You can go all the way back to like the Greeks and understand dialectic mm-hmm. as, as just argumentation to solve a problem. Yeah. So you bring up a thesis, somebody gives you the antithesis, they, they fight back, and then you gradually come to a synthesis of, you, you know, because of that argument, you, you reach something. Plato and Aristotle understood dialectic as that. The difference is that when you go back to Plato, Plato believed dialectic was something that constituted reality. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) Reality itself was dialectical intention. Aristotle, not so much. Aristotle thought dialectic was really just a form of rhetoric, a form of argumentation. And the two of those guys go off into very different streams where the theological or the philosophical progression moved into like, that's, that's really when you get into the depths of philosophy, there's a difference between like Hegel, who's more in that Plato stream where the dialectic is like what constitutes reality. Mm. And then people like Kant, who really more, it's more of a form of argumentation. Bard is more on that side. He doesn't believe that God himself is dialectically intention, right? He doesn't believe that like there's void in God or emptiness and, and, you know, all of sin and evil are coinciding with, you know what I mean? Like, cause yes. that's where dialectical theology can get you. Um, but his dialectical understanding is that in Christ, all things are held together. So this is a very, this is where like you get a lot of, uh, uh, a, a brand new understanding that is following in a tradition. This is what I mean is Bart is not just hearkening back to some like pre-liberal age, right? Like he's not trying to jump over the enlightenment and be like, Hey, we're all doing everything wrong. We need to go back to the early church or something. Yes. He's really he's- developed a new, and that's why he's, he's often associated with the term neo-orthodoxy. He, I don't think he liked that term. He would have just called himself dialectical theologian. But neo-orthodox, uh, when you hear that term, think of Karl Barth. Like he's developing a new understanding of orthodox theology where Christ is the all in all through which everything is understood. And so when he writes Romer Brief, this is the one idea I think people should know about with Barth that is, that is uh, at least worth taking with you that's a little bit deeper is that he totally reorients the whole understanding of election. Bart just flips that on its head in a way and in, in a novel way, but also in a way that is deeply um, uh, challenging and something that you can't just brush off very quickly that in Christ, Christ is the elect and the rejected. He is both the judged and the righteous, right? Like he is those two things. And therefore, when we talk about like these people are elect and these people are the reprobates, right? Uh, Bart says, no, that doesn't represent two different individuals. That represents the one person of Christ. And so he goes to like Romans 11 and uses that one line from Paul, all have been shut up in disobedience so that all will be shown mercy. This rat, this is revolutionary theology, which, which is, and, for, and is also him, uh, dipping his toes in universalism a bit, although he would always push back. He on would that. push back on that. He would say he wasn't a universalist, but, but, uh, other theologians, notably a guy named Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a great Catholic theologian said of Bart, he said, it's impossible for condemnation to really happen in Bart's theology ultimately. Yes. Um, but um, he's not, he's not waving away judgment. It's important yes. to understand that he wasn't calling himself that. That's he right. was and saying, universalism, just for the, just to make sure I'm, I'm clear with folks who are listening, universalism is the idea that, uh, in the end, everyone is going to be saved. Yes. No yeah. one, if there is a hell, it's not going to be a permanent situation, right. which is, uh, a marginal, uh, marginal, but been around Uh, for forever. And that's the thing. And so bar bar wouldn't, uh, he never said that that's what he believed, but his theology, that theology of election deeply. It's not necessarily heretical position. It's just a marginal position. Yeah. We'll say that. I mean, it's, there's been, uh, there have been, uh, Christians again, a minority, but there have been Christians uh, in the 2000 years of Christian history who have had that position. Yeah. It's just by far not been the, yeah, by far it has not been idea. the idea. Which is, and I, you know, this is important to say too, is that like Bart, 
who are his influences? Like, who does he take from? Augustine and Calvin are maybe the two greatest influences on Bart's theology. Like, Bart, is a, he's a Reformed theologian. He reads John Calvin deeply. So when he does his, his whole reinterpretation uh, of double predestination, being in the person of Christ— yeah, he's completely transforming Calvinist understanding, but, but he's taking it out of Calvin. From, yes. And he believes Calvin to be one of the greatest theologians of all time. He's got, apparently on his wall, he has like a picture of, he had a picture of Calvin. I think it was like Augustine, Calvin, and Mozart. He nice. loved, and that goes to, uh, that's another thing about like the enlightenment where he's like the autonomous individual, the artistic, the new mensch, right? He wasn't antagonistic against all of that. Mozart is a total product of the Enlightenment, and he, he believed Mozart was one of the greatest geniuses of, of, of all history, you know? So um, Bard is a captivating figure, and this is yes. maybe just a little intro into why he's so important, is that anything in our churches today that is fully centered on Christ as the Word of God that Christ isn't just a, some moral teacher, but Christ is truly what humanity is destined for. Yeah, that Christ isn't just a category of theology, but that he's the center of theology. That's right. Christology That's is right. theology, is a, is a deeply Bardian-influenced idea. And I'm, I'm like again, I'm not trying to say that it never existed before him, but it, I don't think it was ever put quite in a stark or as uh, as strongly worded terms as and he, as and he did. one of the another thing about that just to to break it down a bit is that I I like how Bart takes some of the the wisdom again of liberal Christianity which I didn't necessarily do so in the 19th century as much but I mean you get into the 20th century you get some scholars who will want to not just autopsy the Bible but demythologize it. I forget exactly who it was. So that was a guy named Rudolf Boltmann. Thank you. And and Boltmann is again, so the demythologizing he, project of theology is something Bart is, like Bart is deeply... Yes. Uh, is Boltmann like a contemporary of Bart or is he a little bit yeah. after? No, they're, 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 they're around they're the same time. Yep. So, but they're both and sort of products Bart of is, that, Bart is writing right? in many ways against Boltmann. Yes. Um, although he, you know, he respects him as a biblical scholar. Boltmann is an interesting figure. We, should, we could talk about him. That's sometime. another good one, yeah. But he is, you know, because he, he often is camped with that liberal stream that's really like, yes. oh, terrible. Terrible. But, uh, but Boltmann had a lot of interesting stuff to say, yeah. but he was, yeah, he was trying to make things more palatable in a sense. That's and, right. Uh, and and so, so liberal theology, again, it doesn't start this way, but you can see how taken, you know, you can see how Boltmann is not necessarily a, again, a tangential figure with liberal theology. That's to some degree where liberal theology yeah. on some level is going to go because, even though yeah. I don't know if Schleiermacher would have thought the same thing as Boltmann, the seeds of Boltmann are, are in, or the, yeah. Yeah. The I mean, I, I understand. And I understand for maybe some people that these names are throwing them off a little bit, but like Bard is definitely closer to Schleiermacher in one yes. sense. And, uh, and it's so what I, I, I try, I'm trying to say something simple and then I got all complicated, but basically what I'm trying to say is that I think the, the enlightenment and the, um, uh, liberal theology mm -hmm. that uh, Bart was a, a part of, what his contribution makes uh, makes for a bit more of a humble theology, a humbler right. approach to things. To say that God is that Christ is the center, not us. Right. To say that God is is more unknowable than than we recognize mm -hmm. it, it is again more of a God centric focus, a more of a humble focus. Whereas, again, taking too far. 
the Enlightenment and the liberal uh, stra- uh, you know, branch of, of Christianity can, again, become arrogant. And now we think, oh, well, it's silly to believe in miracles and things like that. We have to demythologize all of that stuff and make exactly, it yeah. more palatable. And yeah. that's, that's, again, having an idea, I'm above Christian, uh, I'm above the Bible. I'm right. going to sort out this book that's not perfect because it's not enlightened enough. Right, exactly. And, and Bart, and Bart us brings back us to back, a, yeah, yeah, is a part of that, but brings us back to a, a more orthodox, neo-orthodox position in that sense. Mm-hmm. So. That was terrible. I was really trying to be more no, I simple, but I, yeah. <laughs> I think you got it. It's a difficult, uh, a difficult conversation. Bart is not uh, the easiest person, and obviously, it's uh, it's difficult too when, um, when uh, you know somebody like myself trying to relay a lot of it. I mean, Bart is somebody who I've uh, really done a bit of quite a bit of work, and I don't want to say I haven't done anything, um, but uh, I'm no I'm no Bartian scholar expert or anything like that. And, uh, I am just somebody who has read him very closely, who feels very shaped by him. And, um, I, I encourage anybody to try and pick up, I I would say that, like we said, Romer brief, which is a good, you know, if you're looking to read some Bart, read his epistle to the Romans. The other great work is called dogmatics and outline because the dogmatics is huge, but he wrote like a 100 page, something like a 150 page book, which just outlines basically the general ideas of the dogmatics. And that book is a real treasure. That's something cool. fantastic to take take a look at if you can. And what what's amazing too is that book is outlined where it's the Apostles' Creed and it's actually him just going through the Apostles' Creed. Isn't like, that interesting? Line by line, basically. That's cool. I've not and, read that and one. Each chapter. I'll have to book that up. Because yeah, I, I do cool. have the the Comp during the Romans. I just haven't started reading it yet. Well, there you go. I've, so I've there's a little a, bit of Carl Bard. I always have a stack of books that I'm, I'm working through. <laughs> And, and I keep buying more books always. when I haven't read the books I have. Yeah. It's terrible. There's some good secondary readers uh, too, right? I mean, it's always good to just try and like, it's fun to try and read Bart for yourself, but uh, there's always some great, uh, some great things on him as well by, by uh, other authors. Robert Jensen would be a great person to read or something like that. But those are just recommendations. Take them as yes, you will. Yes, absolutely. And, right. and I guess maybe, I don't know, by way of segue to, to maybe a future episode we want to talk about was, yeah. was that as, as brilliant and awesome as Bart's ideas were, yeah, there were some things in his personal life that were less than stellar. Yeah. And this is, I actually, I guess it's not recent scholarship. It's been known for a little while, but I think more recent scholarship has unveiled a little bit more of what's happened. But uh, yeah, he had a bit, of che- a bit of a checkered past, a bit of an adulterous relationship with uh, his secretary. And uh, and it's we're in a future episode, we're going to talk about that. We're going to yes. talk about the idea of why it's still worth reading certain theologians, even if their past and their history is um, marred with sin. And, yes. uh, and so we'll get into that on a later episode, but that was a little intro to Carl Bart. Yay. Good stuff. <laughs>